Hi, Pontus here. We had some issues with sound quality this week. First of all, Jelena is moving house and didn't have access to her regular microphone, so her sound is not the best. Also, Annika Merkelbach sent us a short but excellent interview. And for some reason, there's some static on parts of it, which I couldn't get rid of. So I'm sorry for that. But just so you know, there's nothing wrong with your headset. And I hope that you'll enjoy the episode. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show in support of European-level actions within the skeptical movement. The ESP is run by individuals representing different skeptical groups from across the continent. This is episode 176. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Jelena Levin and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Всем привет! Hey, San, hey, San. Hello. Good we evening. are again recording from all kinds of places in the world. That's correct. Uh, what are those places? Uh, one of those places is my basement, which is very <laughs> normal. But the two of you, I think, are on maybe ad hoc places. But uh, I'm sure we can make it work out. Yeah, I'm still in England, so that's roughly a similar place. Just a different apartment. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm very close to the place where you were born. I mean, I mean, a bit further to the north. I should probably have said at the beginning uh, something like "tere uh, or I don't know. Oi. That's... Oi, 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 oi. <laughs> that sounds very serious. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like some kind of an illness, doesn't it? But... <laughs> or at least if I was sneezing or something. So, are you in Estonia? Is that uh, right? Yeah. Oh, you recognize that. I deducted from prior knowledge. Ah, okay, okay, all right. Yeah, yes, I am actually in uh, Tallinn, which is quickly but surely becoming one of my favorite places on Earth. It's nice, I've been there too, yeah. Beautiful, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. very beautiful. Unfortunately, tomorrow I'm I'm, I'm moving on. But I'm going back to Riga, actually. Oh, yeah. Hmm? Okay, goody, goody. Good. You, You have officially been to Riga more times in a year than I. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and i'm coming back again very soon in a couple of days time always on the move always on the move yeah 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 this is this is why it's it's not easy to find time and especially find a time slot that is okay for all three of us mm. especially when it comes to recording interviews that is quite difficult mm. but we do have one that we recorded and another one that wasn't us recording, but <laughs> yeah. yet another time, it was Annika Merkelbach. She's amazing. She just keeps sending us these interviews, and uh, we are very appreciative of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. However, we do have a lot of other things to talk about. Yeah, well, I have one thing that I forgot to mention last week. And Oh, is it? Do you know what the most common question was that I got at Järva Veckan, this political thing i was at in stockholm Mm-mm. no so so the question goes like this ah so you're a skeptic what's your position on climate change so maybe we should once and for all clear it up if, if anybody may be confused 
we are not so-called climate skeptics. Mm. We go wherever the science takes us. And it, by now it's 100% clear that uh, the climate is changing and human activities are the cause of this. And anyone else who says something different is, is a science denier, not a skeptic, and they're just plainly wrong. Just, just this week, there were two reports out, one about glaciers in the Himalayas and one about Greenland. And we will link to both of them. And they're just two of literally thousands of studies that tells us what's going on with the climate at this point. Mm, yeah. Just well, to set the record straight. The one that I keep hearing more and more now is that people are not denying the climate change, but what they're saying is that uh, humans have nothing to do with it and uh, it would have changed anyway, with or without human intervention. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, already several years ago, I've noticed that the argument is, no, the climate is not changing. Uh, okay, it is changing, but it's nothing to do with humans. <laughs> uh, and then the next steps are, okay, it is to do with humans, but we can't do anything about it. So, so you just—they're just pushing the excuses not to do anything. There's no yeah. logic behind it. Yeah, I think it's uh, the kind of uh, retreating that uh, people do about God. The more science advances and, and knows more, we know more about the world. It's like the the God of the gaps. It's yeah, 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 but you can still not. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I accept evolution, but yeah. You still cannot give us a proper answer to this and that question. And then when those get answered, then then you have to yeah you have to make one step back. Yes, there's a story about my great grandfather that I never yeah. met. Apparently, he said jokingly. Then first of all, it wasn't me. Second of all, I didn't mean to. And third of all, I won't do it again. <laughs> that's that's, that's the that. kind of argument you get. I yeah. love that. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. really cool. Mm -hmm. However, I do think that we all agree that what we need is a bit more of a rational approach to everything. That would be great. There are people working towards that. I would like to include that uh, ourselves in that. But um, there is an upcoming rationalist international conference as well, where people will be discussing issues regarding rationalism or the lack thereof. It's going to happen in the UK, actually, in July 2019. Wow. July 27th to 28th in Cambridge, United Kingdom. So mm. registrations are open. Feel free to do it. I think it's quite expensive, though. I mean, £260, mm. that's quite a lot of money. But the lineup seems uh, pretty cool. And uh, I think uh, if you are a rationalist, or uh, you have no idea whether you are a rationalist and you want to find out, <laughs> go along and uh, try to learn something. Very good. And if you can't afford it, keep listening to the show, this show, because it's free. <laughs> yeah, that is. Nice plug, yeah. <laughs> All right. I think what we should do is just uh, crack on with the show because there's a lot to, to talk about. And uh, as usual... We will start with our segment called This Week in Skepticism. Yelena, have you got something for us? Well, I, I'm actually, it's a different thing today. I normally talk about people. Well, well, I often talk about people. But today, I don't want to talk about people. Okay. 
talk about something else then? Yes, I want to talk about a bridge, <laughs> out of all things, okay. and uh, specifically Tower Bridge in London. On June the 30th of 1894, the Tower Bridge across the River Thames in London was officially opened by the Prince of Wales. <laughs> a procession of vessels passed under the bridge. So the, the bridge was actually very much needed to improve the city traffic. And it was approved by the Act of Parliament in 1885. And the foundation stone was laid on the 21st of June of 1886. So it took a long time to actually build it. And there are a lot of really fascinating things about this bridge in London, which I absolutely love, by the way. Those who haven't seen... I don't think there are many people who don't know how the Tower Bridge actually looks like. It, it is a beautiful no. historical monument. And I love it. One of my favorite, yeah, it's quite iconic. Yeah, yeah, it's one of my favorite views of London uh, across the Thames. It's got its own uh, Instagram account, by the way. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> but I wanted to mention a couple of numbers. It takes five minutes to raise each bus kill of the bridge's central stretch. So the, the, the bridge actually opens up for ships to, and, and, and vessels to pass through. A staggering 31 million bricks and 2 million rivets make up the entire structure. 432 men and women build the bridge between the 1886 and 1894. 22,000 liters of paint were used to paint the bridge. And the uh, bridge is raised approximately 1,000 times a year. Wow. 40,000 Londoners cross the bridge every single day. What? Is it open almost three times a day? Because of the uh, boats, they go backwards and forwards. But I'm, I'm surprised to hear that. I, I, I thought it was open much less frequently. Yeah, okay. No, it's, it, wow, I've, I've seen it raised several times. I haven't crossed it as often as I would like uh, to, but me and Brad did a couple of bike rides in the middle of the night. Um, they're called night riders, sort of organized for charity, etc. And it's just the most wonderful experience when you cross a tower bridge when there isn't much traffic or, or tourists, you know, and it's just all lit up. I, I love that. But the reason why I wanted to mention it today is because of a myth associated with Tower Bridge to do with an American guy who bought London Bridge. Have you, have you heard of that? Yes, I yes. have heard of so, that. So, the legend goes that an American guy who was very, very wealthy needed a bridge and he was allegedly sold London Bridge that he thought was Tower Bridge and was kind of duped into buying the uh, London Bridge without knowing. But actually, it's all just a myth and fake news, as they say nowadays. The American businessman knew f very well what he was doing. He visited London. He specifically requested to buy... London Bridge, not Tower Bridge, regardless of the fact that actually Tower Bridge is much more prettier than London Bridge, but London Bridge is much more functional and that's what he wanted. Therefore, he bought it knowing full well what he's buying, which is very interesting. I, <laughs> for, for a long time, I believe that that was the case, that he was uh, just a silly American who didn't know his right hand from something. And and you can probably relate to that a lot because of the various tourist myths that have been debunked over the time. Because a story like that is a much better story than to say, oh, actually, no, he, he was a sensible guy. <laughs> <laughs> so it still actually is a very popular destination in America, the London Bridge, that separates a resort by the same name. And um, everybody's very happy, Americans and um, 
Brits, I guess, the same because they got a shit lot of money back in the back in the day for the for the bridge over two million pounds. So it's yeah, I think it was a good deal for everybody involved. Hmm. There you go. Very nice. Thank you, Elon. So we are moving on to something that is uh, quite extraordinary. Uh, we have reported a couple of times on uh, how the European Manifesto Against uh, Pseudotherapies is doing. And uh, we are now calling up one of the initiators of this manifesto, Fernando Cervera Rodriguez. Let's see how that goes. Okay, and here with us now is Fernando Cervera Rodriguez from Spain. Hi, Fernando. Hello. Hello. Okay, um, so we've uh, mentioned briefly that you are one of the initiators of this manifesto that we've heard so much about from different European countries in the last couple of weeks. So what is this all about? Well, we are trying to make some skeptical organizations in Europe and more than the skeptical organization, the people in different countries, mostly in Europe, but also outside Europe, to get together to fight against the laws that uh, are allowing to sell uh, pseudoscience in Europe, for example, homeopathy. Yeah, the problem is bigger than, than the countries by themselves. Then mm -hmm. we thought here that if we don't join together for fight against that pseudoscience laws, we are not going to be able to defeat them in our countries. We need a, a bigger approach to the problem. So does that mean that you try to reach a European legislative body with that, like the European Parliament or the European Commission, or, or what is the goal? Yeah, uh, the objective is sure. One of the objectives is arrive to the European Parliament. We have some contacts in some political parties. Sure, if we arrive to the press and also to the to the televisions of different countries, we will also generate some political concern about the issue we are speaking about here. Then uh, the aim, sure, is uh, make politicians in Europe understand something that here in Spain politicians also did, that homeopathy is just something that is not working and is just taking the chance of the ill people to have a really a really chance to get healthy again. The, the idea is arrive to the parliament but also to the press and the, the televisions on the, of the different countries. So you did, I understand you did an earlier version of this where you just addressed the Spanish market, if you will. So how did that go? How many signatures did you get and what was the result of that? Yeah, the, the idea began he, uh, here because we did a similar initiative. We did a, something like a letter to the health minister and we arrived to near 2,000 signatures of different uh, scientists and also health professionals and the idea was the same make the politicians here be uh, clear about what pseudoscience is and it worked well and we arrived to a high level of signatures of, of qualified uh, people did it have any kind of reaction from uh, politicians or the greater field of politics in spain yeah about the first initiative not the manifest yeah uh, in fact here in spain 
after some uh, initiatives, uh, not just the letter, also initiatives made for by other uh, skeptical associations, but sure, also the, man, uh, the letter that we sent to the minister helped a lot because we had some uh, meetings with health ministerium, also to the, with the science ministerium, and at the end we began here in Spain to organize the first European law, as far as we know, to fight against pseudoscience, and that happened some months ago. Now we are in the middle of an impasse because we have here elections, and now is politic times. I mean, uh, they have to organize first them, and then after we have another time uh, government, they will go on with that law. But yeah, it was a big effect because at the end we have here one interesting law. We will have to see if it works well. We have some hope in this law to fight against pseudoscience and one first step for half it was uh, the letter that we sent to the health minister with that 2000 uh, signatures that's very good actually 2000 signatures yeah it is hmm? yeah we hope that that with an out time and also with the help of the different skeptical organizations in europe at least we hope arrive to 10000 we don't know if we will uh, arrive to that uh, quantity of signatures in Europe, but it should be not that difficult if every skeptical association help to achieve that goal uh, within that will be really, really important. So how long will you keep the signatures open? So by which date will you finish the petition? Well, that is an interesting question because, for example, some countries are still organizing their own signatures for the manifest. Other countries have been picking signatures for more than a week, then that means that there are different speeds in Europe in the different countries. There are some countries that we didn't have contact by the moment, others that are in the middle now have organized their own picking signatures platform, and then uh, we don't know yet, because it's difficult to organize 20 countries. By the moment, uh, we just know that uh, we don't know when we will stop picking signatures. Okay. And uh, who are the people that you expect to sign this? Well, we expect a signature from people with scientist education and also people with healthcare education. We are speaking about people with degrees in biology, physics, chemists, also in the health staff, physicians, also physiotherapists, nurses, all the health professions that, that people could imagine. So you don't expect anyone from the field of uh, chiropractic, homeopathy, naturopathy, or uh, what, what, what else is well, there out there? So if, no? they, if they will, <laughs> if they want seeing the manifest against <laughs> chiropractic and homeopathy, <laughs> sure that it will be <laughs> something interesting. But I don't think that they will. But I have to confess something because I will not reveal uh, the name. But when we were trying to organize the signatures, uh, we was that one homeopath seeing the manifest, but we think that he didn't read the manifest and he just think that it was something for regulate in a good way homeopathy in Europe. Well, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, but since he signed, he signed, right? And we're keeping the signature. No, no, yeah, we, we, right. we <laughs> thought that, that it was not ethical. Because, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> ah, okay. But it was funny anyway, <laughs> fine, the signature. Sure. 
And the last question before we say goodbye, what is the response from the different skeptical organizations across Europe? I mean, uh, do you need, do you still need help in reaching all those organizations or you pretty much found them all and you're just waiting for the response or some have already started working on it or what's it like now? Well, it's an interesting question because uh, there are some difficulties in order to coordinate a high quantity of, of countries because, for example, we are not just uh, asking signatures just in Europe. For example, we are also asking in other countries. Then the language is... Uh, we are t we try to find people to translate the manifest, but by the moment I think that we just have 12 or 13 translations to different languages. Uh, we also had at the beginning, because we are working with not a lot of resources, then at the beginning we had some contacts in some countries, but not in others. The response is, by the moment, depends a lot on the quantity of, of contacts that we had before. Also, we are trying to uh, have new contacts by the people that we are contacting. <laughs> we are uh, now in, in that moment where we are trying to make it bigger. By the moment, it's working well, but I will ask to all the people that is listening now that it don't matter where they are uh, listening that they contact with us uh, in order to to try to spread the manifest in their countries yeah let's let's all promote it yeah. and uh, of course we will provide the link to the website of the manifest among the show notes all right well fernando thank you very much for coming on the show to talk about this we all hope that um, this is going to be a great success and and people will listen to this and uh, people will sign it and there's something that comes out of it. Um, thank you for the chance for stay here and speak about the manifest. Thank you for the things that you are doing and thank you for the chance for stay here. Anytime when there is something, any kind of uh, new development, just uh, drop us a line and uh, of course we're, we're always going to be happy to have you on, on the show. Fernando Cervera Rodriguez, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Goodbye. Good luck. Okay, very nice. Let's move on to another regular segment. And that is when Pontus pokes the Pope. On 17th of June, there was a deadline to file claims against the Archdiocese of Santa Fe, New Mexico, in their Chapter 11 reorganization which is, for those who don't know, the bankruptcy procedures in the US. Out of 400 claims brought against the archdiocese, 374 claims concerned allegations of sexual abuse. So, what, what's going on with this? And what has bankruptcy has to do with sexual abuse allegations? Well, it turns out that this is the latest trick for the Catholic Church to get out of paying money to their victims. About 20 dioceses and other religious orders around the US have filed for bankruptcy protection as a result of clergy sex abuse claims. And victims advocates says that this, there are trends. This allegedly includes shifting assets to other funds or to other parishes. This has happened, for instance, in dioceses in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Tennessee and Southern California. In the case of Santa Fe, this is especially bad because a lot of the time in the past, predators, sexual predators in other dioceses were relocated to New Mexico instead of being punished. So you've been a bad boy, eh? Off you go to New Mexico. So instead of getting properly handled. 
And the consequence of that, of course, is that certain kinds of priests have been concentrated in, in Santa Fe and in New Mexico, free to continue their favorite hobby, which, of course, is molesting children. Oh. In episode 174, we heard about the U.S. Catholic Church spending over $10 million to lobby against prolonging the statutes of limitations. They were lobbying to stop victims from getting longer time to file complaints. So that's one way of stopping victims to get paid. But apparently this new other option is to empty the local diocese of assets by transferring them to other entities in the Catholic Church and then declare bankruptcy, which means that there's no money left to pay the victims. <laughs> that's an interesting way to take responsibility for your actions. That is now how the Catholic Church treats their congregation. First, let the abuse continue, and when it's found out, come up with every trick in the book to avoid paying any compensation. And this is a global organization that is so rich and so unregulated that they themselves, as we have talked about in the past, have admitted that they cannot themselves estimate how much money they have. We just know that it's a lot. Uh, like more than you can ever imagine. So uh, I don't care how nice and progressive you say that Pope Francis is. This is the organization he's leading, and he is allowing this to go on. Hmm. So he should expect to be poked from time to time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what an evil way to find a loophole, guys. Yeah. yeah, because you you think of the Catholic Church as one entity, but no, they have different entities in different states. And when when one of them gets hit by these allegations, they shuffle the money around and then they declare bankruptcy and say, no, we don't have any money, except that the Catholic Church has loads of money. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Mm. Oh, OK. Thank you very much, Pontus. I think we have a new segment, or at least we should name it a new segment. <laughs> Annika Reports. Exactly. <laughs> Calling it Annika Reports. Let's call it that from now on. She does report from Cologne Skeptics in the Pub. And uh, there was a talk given by Mirko Gutjar, who's an archaeologist and a podcaster. And let's listen to what he has to say. So I'm here in Cologne um, at our Skeptics in the Pub pub. <laughs> We're just after the presentation and um, yeah, could you introduce yourself? Yes, hello, I'm Mirko Gutja. I'm one of the skeptics from Leipzig. I'm archaeologist and historian and today I was here to present a talk about belief systems and magical thinking. We already talked about your uh, German nickname what is your German nickname, what it mean in English, and what can you tell us about your job? Well, of course, I'm a archaeologist, so my nickname is related to that profession. Um, I call myself der Butler, which means the excavator or the digger. A nickname which uh, functions very well for my different podcasts relating on topics like archaeology, history, but also pseudoscience. 
and today I was presenting all of that in one talk, so to say, uh, trying to stress the connections between modern esoteric beliefs um, to old traditions of um, belief systems. For instance, uh, believing that you can charm yourself by wearing amulets with inscriptions of parts of the Bible and today it's, it's an amulet against all evil or whatever. So you would say it's something that's historical but also still here right now? That's true, yeah. Um, I wanted to show that there's still the underlying ideas which are the basis of modern belief systems uh, were there uh, right from the beginning. For instance, the idea that uh, things which you interact with has impact on others. For instance, that you can make divinations foretell by dreams the future or whatever. Those were ideas which can nicely be shown also by archaeology, by archaeological finds, which have the same background, the same basic ideas behind them, like modern esoteric beliefs. That's um, very interesting in my opinion. And uh, you also said that you have several podcasts and also an English one. Yes, I have a very nice uh, American friend which translates my podcast Das Geheime Kabinett into English, which is then translated to The Secret Cabinet. It's a podcast about all things which don't end up in history books because they're not suitable for children or whatever, uh, but still are part of the history. For instance, trees on which penises grow on the witch trials against dolphins or whatever. Very funny but still interesting topics which also shows that those are still part of, of our history and are still important till today because there's the underlying ideas are still there till today. You're also an author, right? You also wrote books? Yes, of course, I'm, as a scientist, I'm end up writing books with others. Uh, I had several books, uh, two of them I had the opportunity to sell to, to the audience today. It's, for instance, a book on uh, one of my topics, lead tablets, uh, which inscriptions uh, which were used against uh, evil spirits and demons, uh, find um, which we might make quite often nowadays because we know what we look for, um, because they're very small and uh, are often overlooked in the field, but still we um, uh, are now able to, to put them into context. And the other one is another field uh, of work I was doing. It's on Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Thesis, which is highly debated. Of course, uh, 2017 we had this Vicky of the 500 years anniversary. And uh, we were able to show that Martin Luther not only nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, but to other churches as well in Wittenberg. And he did so with a copy of a print which he commissioned by himself and uh, did so in Leipzig. And we were able to trace the original pieces. So this debate is now over for good, <laughs> so to say. And this was a ni very nice finding in connection to the Jubilee which we were working on, and this little small booklet coming uh, out uh, on this topic. That's very interesting, and we're talking about the 500-year jubilee? Um, yes, of course, yeah. Um, 1517, Luther put his posts against their selling of indulgences against the church doors in Wittenberg. Not only the castle church, but the city church and other small churches, because he wanted to invite to an academical debate. And now the train is running through, and uh, I think we 
Yes, and um, we were able to uh, examine the originals from that period and can now show that the, uh, the prints, which were commissioned by Luther himself in Leipzig, were uh, exactly those which went to Rome, uh, where one of the opponents of Martin Luther used them to, to write against Luther again, and he used the same printing mistakes, and which only exist in this copy. The later copies don't show them anymore, so we're quite sure this must be the original one. And uh, of course, it's not something that will change history uh, altogether, but still, it's a very nice finding. And uh, the debate is quite fierce, as we <laughs> as we found out, since there are several colleagues uh, wrote against us and didn't have actually arguments against our findings, but tried to discuss against us anyway. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So I just saw your beer arriving. That's oh, why I right. would like to yes. thank you for the interview. And do you very quickly want to say where people can find you on Twitter or your website? Of course, on Twitter, you can find me with the Twitter handle Der Butler, D E R B. U-D-D-L-E-R and uh, you can find my podcasts, of course the German ones um, which is uh, Das Geheime Kabinett just google Das Geheime Kabinett.de or in English it's The Secret Cabinet. There's another one which will be um, reviewed quite soon uh, which is Angegraben uh, which is an archaeological, archaeological podcast on findings and trends in archaeology so be sure to uh, look into that as well. Okay, thank you for the interview. Thank you very much for having me. All right. That's thank you, Annika. Amazing. Thank you, Annika. And keep doing what you do. This is really good. So uh, let's move on to discussing the news items. The so-called Welcome Global Monitor for 2018 was published on 19th of June. And this is a report of the attitudes of people all over the world towards science and healthcare. And we'll link to the full report if anybody is interested. Among the questions were how people felt about vaccines. There were two aspects addressed in this area. One was, do you believe that vaccines are safe? And do you believe that vaccines work? In summary for the whole world, here are the results. 79% agreed that vaccines are safe, while 7% disagreed and 14% had no opinion. 84% agreed that they worked, 5% disagreed that it worked, and 12% couldn't say. So th that was the global averages, but there were a lot of differences between regions and countries. And unfortunately for Europe, two areas in the world who were most skeptical of vaccines were... Eastern and Western Europe. In Eastern Europe, just about 50% thought that vaccines were safe compared with, let's say, South Asia, who was the highest in the list, with over 90% thinking it was safe. And when we talk about Eastern Europe, we should remember that Ukraine is one of the worst countries in the world when it comes to the ongoing measles epidemic, which is a consequence of people not trusting vaccines. There were other findings in this study. One was that there's a correlation between confidence in medical professionals and confidence in vaccines. And I think that's quite expected and, and natural. If you, if, you, if you trust your medical advisor and your MD, you also trust him when he says that the vaccines work. 
But there's another a little bit troubling correlation here as well. It's it's a negative correlation between scientific literacy and confidence in vaccines. So the more you know about science, the less you trust vaccines, according to this study. And that sounds confusing, but science literacy goes hand in hand with education. And the more educated you are, chances are that you have actually heard about reports about vaccine safety and vaccine issues. But there's also one more observation, which may fuel an old controversy we've had here on this podcast, where I have in the past argued against making vaccines mandatory, because I feel that it may drive suspiciousness against vaccines. And here is something that may support my position here, because in France, who for a long time has had mandatory vaccinations and penalties against those not taking vaccines, they have the lowest confidence of all countries. In France, as much as a third of the population don't think that vaccines are safe, and only 68% believe that they are effective. But still, they are very much vaccinated because they've it's mandatory, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is interesting that you can draw many other conclusions from this story. I mean, it's 130 pages long, the the total report, and we will link to the whole thing. It's a big PDF that you can download, and I strongly recommend looking at it and read it, at least parts of it, because it's really good. And it says a lot about how people's literacy in science goes hand in hand or not hand in hand with trusting medical expertise, etc. There's also uh, the dimension of of religion in there that you can study. So uh, it's interesting. It's not all good news, but it's very interesting. (laughs) Thank you. Well, isn't that interesting? Because my news items directly linked to your news items, Pontus. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) <laughs> in fact, my news items mentions how low the trust in vaccines in France is, so I shall not be mentioning it again. But anyway, <laughs> the UK Health Authority has issued a memorandum to tell the four holidaymakers who are traveling outside UK to get vaccinated. This is a sort of a fairly new development, and the Public Health England has teamed up with travel industry to warn holidaymakers to ensure that they are vaccinated against measles before the summer break because of everything we speak about on the, on this podcast all the time, i.e. Mm. the outbreak of measles across Europe, like everywhere you go. They, they specifically actually highlighted the following countries, which we heard uh, again and again in Pontus's report and Andres reported on it. France, Romania, Bulgaria, Germany, Poland, Lithuania. So those countries are not going to be surprised to us. We know that the, the, the vaccination rates and, and trust in vaccines are very low in those, and therefore the outbreaks. The Public Health England Agency warns that the cases of measles are on the rise in England as well. There were 231 cases confirmed from January 3 to March, and many are linked to importation from Europe. Yeah. Measles can kill and very easy to catch, especially if you're not vaccinated. And therefore, vaccination is very much advisable. So we finally live in the age where the health authorities advising vaccination for those who want to travel to other European countries. I didn't think we we're going to ever see that day. An unfortunate day. <laughs> there we are. 
Yeah. If only there was a way to keep the UK isolated from the rest of Europe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all those bloody foreigners, isn't it? Inadvertently, this is another point for Brexiteers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Actually, vaccines is the theme here among the news because I'm going to talk about more vaccine-related <laughs> uh, news. A Spanish doctor has been suspended for a year for saying that vaccines cause autism. Isabel Belontas is the name of the doctor. She has promoted this quote-unquote theory, which has been debunked so many times, also on this podcast, that vaccines can cause autism. Now the ECOMEM, or the Madrid Medical Association, banned her from practicing as a doctor for, quote, unsupported claims against scientific evidence on the origin and cause of the autism spectrum disorder. Listeners to this show should not be unfamiliar with the story about how Andrew Wakefield, paid by lawyers and hoping to promote his own vaccine, fabricated evidence to discredit the MMR vaccine and published a paper in The Lancet in 1999 where he claimed that the MMR vaccine caused autism. Of course, it wasn't true, but it took more than a decade to debunk this myth, and so the idea has taken hold. And now we have a worldwide epidemic, and we still have these quacks promoting these unfounded ideas. We just talked about the attitudes regarding vaccines, and uh, yeah, this plays a major part of it. Wakefield has a lot on his conscience, if he has a conscience, he should. Mm. So, one example, if there's any doubt that this is just nonsense, there was this quite recently published Danish study of over 650,000 children born between 1999 and 2010. And there was no link to be found at all between having being vaccinated and having, well, being on the, the autistic spectrum. So, I guess it's good news then that uh, it doesn't go unpunished in Spain to repeat this nonsense. And uh, the risk is, of course, that anti-vaxxers all over the place will call it censorship and blame Big Pharma for trying to hide the truth. Mm -hmm. Bloody hell. Mm -hmm. All right. Ooh. Okay, so moving on. That means that uh, we have one more thing that Pontus will talk about, yet another thing. Pontus, are you having your own show now? Yes, I have. So, has some th anyone been really wrong lately? Oh, yes. I am going to set a new world record in really wrong awards today. And I will hand out over a million of them at the same time. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. We have mentioned a couple of times now that the French health authorities seem to be on their way to remove public funding for homeopathy. And this is, of course, very alarming for homeopathy producers. And as we said last week, they have teamed up now to fight the whole thing, although they seem rather pessimistic about the outcome. But they haven't given up. When they failed to produce any credible evidence that homeopathy works, because it doesn't, they instead are now trying to get help from the public. Boiron has started a campaign for signatures called My Homeopathy, My Choice. And at the time of this recording, they have received more than 
1,100,000 signatures. Mm. So just to be very clear, why is homeopathy such a stupid idea? Well, very shortly, even homeopaths agree that chemically homeopathic pills contain no or as good as no active substance whatsoever. Classical homeopathic pills are prepared out of a dilution of any substance. You can pick whatever you want to. But it becomes so thin or so diluted that the resulting liquid is practically pure water. And then that water is dropped over a sugar pill. And the idea is that the water has a memory of what was once in it, uh, which of course is stupid nonsense. Uh, But of course, even if you reject this idea, it can still be tested. And it has been tested. But it turns out that no properly conducted study can show any efficacy whatsoever of these so-called remedies, which is what you should expect. So this is now why Boiron and the others are pessimistic, because it's impossible for them to come up with the evidence that the French health authorities has requested. Now, in their desperation, they are turning to the public with this website of signatures to instead try to get the authorities to back down from the demand of evidence. Because over a million people can't be wrong, right? Wrong! They can be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Because part of this is that it's known that many, many people don't know what homeopathy is. They usually think it's some sort of uh, herbal remedy or quote-unquote natural pills that... And and often when you explain to them what it actually is, a lot of people don't even believe it because it sounds like such a stupid idea. I don't care how many people signs this petition because it proves nothing about what works or not. Everyone who has signed this stupid thing gets today's prize for being really wrong. Thank you. That means that we are concluding the show. But before we go, let me ask if Yelena has a quote for us. I do have a quote from Galileo Galilei. He said, All truths are easy to understand once they are discovered. The point is to discover them. Yeah. Right. Very good. At first, I thought that when you were referring to Galilei, that uh, the quote would have gone like, fuck the Pope. <laughs> I'm not quite sure that's accurate, though. I think <laughs> that's what he thought, but I'm not sure he said it out loud. Well, no, no, no. He, he wrote it down. He made a fool out of the Pope. Simplicius, the, the one that he used as a character in the dialogue, it is identified as the Pope. Yeah, but did he say fuck the Pope? Uh, basically, he did. He said <laughs> the Pope is an idiot. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. No, not only the Pope, not only the Pope, but the, the church officials. Yeah. All right. Anyway, thank you very much, Helena. That was great. Short and sweet. <laughs> yeah. All right. So thank you very much. And uh, well, uh, that concludes our show. So I'd like to thank both of you for letting me join you for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Doing, well, you're doing most nothing, welcome. basically. <laughs> And I hope hope you'll allow me to do that again. And uh, I'd like to uh, uh, thank our listeners for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Paka paka. Bye bye. Also, sorry for the crap recording, but I'm in the middle of moving.
Anyway, it's a long story. Пока, пока. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe <laughs> Did you just hit the mic? Yes, I did. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> there were two areas addressed in this uh, area. Two areas addressed. In two this things area. addressed in this area. No. Thank you. Thank you. There were two aspects. <laughs> oh, fancy. Yeah. Let me ask if Yelena has a oh. quote for us. Oh, dear. I don't have a quote. <laughs> oh, fuck. I mean, I have... Yeah, I have no other knowledge about anything else. But <laughs> come on, I have to cut this out. Can't do that. Oh, shush, shush. Keep digging, Andres. Yeah, close the show. Close the show. Close the show.